welcome to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In this episode, I'm talking with STEM superstar, Dr. Ajay Sharman, who is at the vanguard of the STEM industry and STEM education interface. Ajay has had extensive experience in the biosciences and biotechnology sector, working for several high-profile organizations. But he's also found time to support education, as well as a school governor, trustee, and long-standing STEM ambassador for over 20 years. His current role for STEM learning is across the southeast and previously included London, continues to inspire him to open up STEM engagement opportunities for young people, particularly those in the most disadvantaged areas in his region and beyond, while actively helping to upskill teachers and technicians to improve the quality of teaching in the classroom. A passionate advocate for STEM and working closely with employers and universities, he is a true dynamo in the sector with an undimmed enthusiasm for science and technology. We've got plenty to discuss on this pod, so without further ado, let's hear Ajay's View from the Lab. Hi Ajay, welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Really a privilege and an honour to be with you today, Andy, thank you. That's very kind of you, very kind of you. Um, it's nice to have a chat with you here. Uh, for the listeners, um, kind of, uh, context, it is uh, middle of May 2023, just in case there's anything exciting in the news that you, you, has happened before this podcast has been released. Um, I wanted to start, uh, kind of chat to Adj about many things uh, because he is a bit of a bit of a science hero. And I wanted to start with his beginning of his journey, as I often do with my guests, as I like to hear about their how their their love of science was was nurtured, perhaps when they were younger, or whether they nurtured it themselves, perhaps. So let's start off with yourself as a younger person. I know you're very young uh, anyway, Adj, but um, a younger person. What was it like? Uh, how did you discover science in perhaps school or maybe even before school? Do you have any thoughts about your kind of younger memories about um, when you first interacted with science in some way? Yeah, look, I, I, young is a different issue these days. I think I've got a lot of experience. I think it's a good word. Um, I've loved science since I can remember, to be frank with you, Andy. And, and there are so many memories, particularly at secondary school. I have to say that I think things have changed a lot nowadays in primary schools for, for bringing science forward. And we probably did very little science at primary school that I can ever remember or what we would term as core science. But it was really secondary school, Andy, where, it, where life changed a little bit when it came to understanding and enjoying science itself. Um, I had great biology, chemistry and physics teachers. I didn't have a great passion for physics. I'll be very honest with you. But actually, I absolutely love biology and chemistry enormously. And in fact, um, one particular chemistry teacher is a great memory that I have, which is David, David Haradine. And um, David Haradine was the chemistry teacher who decided that he was going to have a column of oxygen and a column of hydrogen and um, and have a perspex sheet behind which um, apparently we were safe um, and uh, decided to put a spark between the two. Now, if you know what you suddenly get between hydrogen and oxygen and you put a spark between the two, you form water with enough energy. Um, you don't only just form water, but you actually then um, produce enough energy that snaps the perspex in such a way that actually um, it frightens the living daylights out of the the, the, the pupils um, that were on the other side, including me, of course. Uh, and secondly, set off the fire alarm and bring the fire engines to the school. I have never forgotten that. And I, I think the sheer curiosity of science at that moment in time was probably sparked, literally sparked by that moment. Um, I, I said the chemistry teacher was magnificent 
magnificent. And I, I blame him for everything that's happened since and my, my journey so far. Um, and unfortunately, he's not around anymore. Um, but I would say I did get a chance to tell him thank you before he did pass away that he's he just done a fantastic job in, in, in leading me into the what I call the promised land called science, technology, engineering and maths where I am today. So, yeah, it was all it all came from one science experiment, strangely. And that curiosity continued with me to this day, in fact. Well, that sounds like a well, literally something that's going to lodge in the memory. Did he go through quite a lot of perspex um, sheets during his time in that school? Was it a once a year um, occurrence? <laughs> I don't think he was allowed to do that experiment ever again. <laughs> it can be done in micro scale now and not in what I call a mega scale, so to speak. No, I, there are lots of health and safety issues that have, uh, have gone on beyond those days when I was much younger. But I have to say, it's all about making sure that science um, is exciting. It is fun. But it's also engaging with pupils, and that's really important, I think. And I think that's what he tried to do as a, an excellent chemistry teacher. So blessed to have him at an early stage of my career and probably what led me to a, a kind of career in science um, to this day. So, yeah, sounds very inspirational. It's, 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 it's difficult sometimes to get the balance right, isn't it, as a teacher, I think, of... Um the excitement of, of science, but also the, I suppose, the, the theory behind it, which is often usually quite challenging sometimes, um, is to get that balance right and getting people enthusiastic enough to, I suppose, push through the difficulties when you're learning complex subjects. And um, those little uh, way markers uh, along the journey obviously inspired you and probably many other students in your, in your school as well. So you... Um, uh, so you said you weren't a big fan of physics, but you don't mind a bit of physics, but um, you, you you then kind of, um, after your, your school journey or your, or your, your kind of uh, sixth form journey, you decided to go for, for biochemistry. Now, biochemistry is quite, well, it still is, you know, it's a fascinating subject, um, uh, but it's very wide, like much of science is. Was it, what was it about biochemistry particularly that you thought, oh, that sounds like a, an exciting, interesting pathway to go down? Well, I, I think, to, to, to be frank, it, it kind of combined the two really important subjects that I enjoyed. I mean, I did maths at A-level as well, but I really loved biology and chemistry together. It seemed like a very sensible combination. When you're at sixth form, adding the two came, came naturally to me. And there were some fantastic courses around the country, really, to do biochemistry. And I was very lucky enough to finally be offered uh, a chance to do a kind of uh, potential four-year course, a sandwich course, but basically at the University of Kent at Canterbury. Um, and my love for Canterbury has grown ever since because now I live in Canterbury and okay. that's my permanent residence. So I have left it since but uh, and come back to it, but it's the magnet that brings me back. Um, but yes, I, I biochemistry was I combined both subjects really well. And actually, when when you did some um, when you did some background reading, you realise that some really interesting. Um, um, possibilities of solutions to problems that exist in society whether they're environmental problems whether they're health related problems or otherwise so biochemistry is a really exciting course and I think the, what really turned me on actually Andy was the fact that there was an opportunity to do an industrial training year as part of my degree course which is and not and that time, not many people were allowed to go and do that. So I was very lucky enough to, A, get on the course, and B, um, be good at it, I think, to relatively, um, to be given the chance to go and do an industrial training year, which is what I did. And how did you find that? So going to Europe as a young young person, um, 
did you find anything particularly different or strange when you went to, uh, was it Germany or was it um, Holland? Sorry. Apologies. Well, that, that was so very much at the PhD level. I mean, in fact, okay. during, the, during the degree uh, period, I was very lucky enough to join, the I think, the first ever biotechnology research group that ever existed within the public um kind of public laboratories, uh, which was based at the laboratory of the government chemist, and um, which was based then at Waterloo, is now part of the National Physical Laboratory in London. And uh, I was, uh, I said, a sandwich student that went there for a year. Um, I then fell in love with microbes, would you believe, while they're looking at microbiology and microbial aspects to the biochemistry, so microbial biochemistry, in fact, and um, looking at solutions uh, to issues and problems. And, and it was a really, it was a wake-up call, I think, from what you learned actually at degree level to what actually is required at industry level in some shape or form in terms of the application of science. And actually, science and its application are what is are really important. And it's all about solving problems. And so, yeah, the laboratory of the government chemist was wonderful. I had some great people there um, uh, under the guise, uh, under the leadership of Dr. Peter Baker at the time, and Sue Armfield, and, and a, a lovely group of people there who really taught me more than just the science they taught me an understanding about what it means to work in a professional laboratory environment, and uh, and I used to travel on the tube into into. I mean, thankfully my parents were in North London, so I stayed at home and then travelled on for an hour. Would you believe on the Northern Line into into Waterloo? But that was a revelation too. I mean, for somebody who kind of lived in the outskirts of London from quite a disadvantaged background, going into central London was a complete change for me too. So I, there was a lot of learning there, not just from a laboratory point of view, but also a living and, and being part of a, uh, you know, being part of London in a more kind of industry environment as well and a more commercial environment too. And so um, after you finished that sandwich year, did that kind of, I know you, you, you tend to do like a project in your undergraduate degree anyway, but did that kind of inform that? Were you able to take some of those ideas or was it completely separate when you went back to university and it had all been forgotten and you just did something else? So in your final year, did you take a bit of that experience to that, that undergraduate project? I, I very much did. And actually, while I was at the laboratory of the government ke chemist, um, there was a particular professor there, Professor Chris Knowles, who was actually attached to the University of Kent. Didn't, I didn't know him very well. I knew he did some lectures with us at the time during, during the undergraduate part. But he came a calling at some point, realised I was doing a sandwich year, had obviously spoken to the, the colleagues within the laboratory there who had a relationship with. And, um, and at that moment in time, when I returned in my th proper third year of my degree course, he caught me in the corridor of the University of Kent uh, in the biosciences department and said, um, tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you fancy doing a PhD with me? Um, we've heard some good stuff about you. And I had no, honestly, I had no idea what that really meant, to be honest with you. I could, be, I could tell you lots of wonderful stories here that, oh, the light bulb moment, this, that, and the other. No, actually, I just thought to myself, do you know, I really enjoyed my time and that's doing that microbial biochemistry and the microbial um, biotechnology, which is what biotech, essentially what it was. And, um, and I thought, well, why not? What, a, what you know, if somebody had um, confidence in me to tap me on the shoulder and say, would you like to do a PhD? Then maybe there is something in me that's worth me pursuing a bit more in science. And actually, I also saw it as a great stepping stone in what will be what ended up as in a commercial world of science as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I just thought, well, could this be another three years at university? 
Well, that sounds good yeah. to me too. Yeah, why not? Um, but it also, I think I, it was doing a subject that I could really fell uh, quite passionately in love with, actually, and I'm still in love with it. I still read about it all the time, even though I might not physically do it from a laboratory point of view anymore. So, yeah, it's interesting. We talked about kind of uh, I suppose random, random, maybe not random, but um, chance uh, kind of conversations in, in corridors and the power I think of um, our seniors believing in us in terms of asking us, you know, would you like would you like to do this ad? And how often it's um, Maybe it's a bit of ego, perhaps, but um, you, you kind of think, oh, yeah, I'll, actually, yeah, I would like to, like to do that. And it might not have crossed your mind before. But, um, you know, that, that's a powerful um, question uh, you know, that, that that scientist asked you. 100 percent. And I think that the, the real, real interesting thing is that you, 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 failure is a really dirty word in many, many aspects. But failure in science is not a dirty word because actually creating and, and getting solutions to problems uh, uh, requires you to fail sometimes in, in scientific experiments. And, you know, believe me, in, in the laboratory of the government chemist, there were a lot more failures than there were successes. So when you do get those failures, sometimes it's a knockdown in science. And actually, one thing I learned very quickly, and I certainly learned in my PhD as well, which I'm sure we'll come to talk to, talk about, is the fact that actually um, success only comes from sometimes failing a few times as well. And I think um, you're right about confidence. When somebody else has confidence with you, with you, about you and with you, it really does it does kind of boost your endeavor to kind of succeed further and, and, and go further. And I think I owe Professor Chris Knowles a lot, actually. And, um, and, uh, and, and yeah, and I continue to talk to him to this day. So he's a very special man. And um, you said you talked about Kent and my, my impression of Kent, this may be wrong, but it's quite a strong biomedical kind of area, would you say? Is it a lot of big companies that they used to be? I know things have changed over, over time. Um, obviously, you're a you're, you're local, you're lo in that local area. Is it still a strongish area for, for chemistry and biochemistry or has that changed a little bit? Yeah, it's a great. It's, it continues to be a great. It was a great department then. It's a great department now. I've got some great friends still in the Department of Biosciences at the University of Kent, but also on the doorstep, you've got people, things like the Discovery Park at Sandwich itself and um, where they do lots of what I call biochemistry, biomedical, pharmaceutical, healthcare related aspects, as well as other things like digital um, technologies, etc. So, yes, I think science is, a, is, a, is, is, is fundamental to an aspect of what happens in Kent, actually. And there's some, a lot of great history that um, continues to, to be developed uh, within the boundaries of what we, we call rural Kent or the Garden of England, as people like to call it. Yes, um, uh, you know, lots, lots of nice, um, lots of history, but we won't delve down the history. We'll stick to the science for a minute. Well, um, so I was going to ask you, so, um, so your European jaunt was part of your PhD. Um, how did you find that in terms of working with um, European scientists? Were there more similarities and differences? How, how do you reflect on that time? Well, pretty daunting. Um, at the time, um, being asked to go to um, Wuppertal, which is in Germany, it's a, a great, a lovely place. People, some people never heard of Wuppertal. Well, why would you if you don't know about Wuppertal? But I went. I was very lucky enough to spend a great deal of time with Professor Manfred Schneider out there. And the idea, part of my 
my PhD was very much about using bacteria to produce chemicals in a particular spatial arrangement. Um, we call it chirality, essentially. In other words, um, it's like your hands. The hands are kind of mirror images of each other, but they're not superimposable. And that's effectively chirality. And in space, um, you can have the same elements making up a molecule, but they can look, they are different. Uh, and their makeup uh, in uh, literally in the spatial arrangement uh, and that's important for drug development because that's the specificity you want in drug development so my particular phd was using bacteria to actually produce particular um, molecules that could go on to make drugs essentially to cut a long story short and to use to isolate bacteria like that novel bacteria like that was quite a quite a quite a feat um and would you believe i found bacteria that grew on propene gas um and and for those who are who might be listening to this podcast will know that propene with that ene is a double bond and when you open the double bond you can actually create um what we call epoxides and it was actually using bacteria to create these epoxides and then particular um, molecules in a particular chiral um space now, the great thing with this is that we were in a time when I was doing my PhD that we didn't have great tools to be able to look at the different spatial arrangements of molecules. And Professor Manfred Schneider and his team at Wuppertal were developing new gas liquid chromatography columns. They are to a penny now. You know, science moves on at such a pace. At that time, it was right, very cutting edge. And I was able to go over um, to, to learn about gas liquid chromatography, um, to understand about chiral, um, chiral uh, molecules and how to kind of separate them uh, and also analyze them. And I was, I was in a, an incredible laboratory within the university there with Professor Manfred Schneider, and I just learned so much. But for all, for all the um, being in a German lab, everybody wanted to speak English to me. <laughs> So, so my, 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 my theory about going to, to learn German and become quite fluent in German was uh, completely kiboshed uh, at that time in, t in terms of the fact that they wanted to speak English all the way through. So I did try and learn German while I was in Wuppertal, but I have to say I probably taught more English than I'd learned more German myself. So, But it was great and a, a great opportunity to work in an international lab with an international scientist of high reputation and to be able to be inspired by his team and by inspired by him as well and coming back with much greater knowledge uh, about things that we could do and in fact i came back with a, a grass a, a few gas liquid chromatography columns that we'd never had and we had no access to in the uk at the time and that really probably ultimately made my phd thesis to be frank with you and 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 showed as i did show particular organisms and their kind of enzymic structure for all intents and purposes able to produce molecules in one form that could be really important and that really was a, a a kind of light bulb moment for me that actually bacteria could be so specific in the way they they actually you know metabolize use molecule you know use molecules and could be used in biotechnology and and in healthcare and pharmaceutical research in a really novel way so yeah really excited i was super excited and actually what at the same time while i did my time in Wuppertal, i also also got the chance to to go to wachningen in in holland as well during my phd to go and work with professor jean de bont and he was another remarkable scientist i, I, I just i kind of walk away thinking i will never be like them and i never am like them at all <laughs> they were in a different different dimension 
to science. But working in those universities, they were able to really convey to me um, thinking, thinking laterally, thinking creatively, innovatively, but also actually fundamentally thinking across boundaries of countries. Um, science is, doesn't have a language really. Um, it's, it's, it's used and, and problem solved across the world. And we need scientists from across the world to work together collaboratively. It's all about connections for me. And I may come back onto that later on about the importance of relationships and connections. Yes, it was quite interesting hearing what you're, you're talking about. Also, the um, the difficulty when um, trying to learn different language, you know, going to a different different you know European country and learning a different language, and it re- made me reflect on um, my brother-in-law works for a big mobile phone company in Germany, in south, southern Germany. And bizarrely to me, I didn't realise this till a couple of years ago, is that in their office they all they all speak English in um, in, in in Munich, and I thought this is, this is bizarre. No wonder you're. German isn't that good you've lived here for 10 years um and uh, actually longer than that and it's not particularly good either so it's just interesting it's just reflection of that that I hadn't thought about and yeah it does make it a challenge uh, to kind of develop your language skills um at the same time but I guess that is just the nature of um you know the the, the kind of you know the the the, the popularity of English is the second you know second language but, but believe me outside that laboratory world and on the weekends and in the evenings you I did practicing. practice my German and my well my Dutch was certainly never going to get anywhere but my German certainly did and I was lucky enough to do uh, at that time O levels in German so I kind of had the the, the 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 brains and the the neurons triggered at some stage for some German words which is brilliant so Okay, that's good to see to improve. Good. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to jump forward a little bit, possibly. I'm trying to think, figure out where the timeline of this next bit is. So you then were looking at, um, I've got my notes here, looking at um, uh, environmental problems, I guess using your biochemistry in some way to sort out contamination. Um, where, where was that in a journey? Was that many years past your PhD? Could you just fill us in on about that? Well, actually, when I finished my PhD, while I was finishing my PhD, I was offered an opportunity for a spin-out company from the University of Kent and to join them to, to get into the commercial world, so to speak, of science and environmental biotechnology, essentially. And Professor Chris Knowles was actually majorly responsible for that um, spin-out company. So I joined a company called Viridian and then became Viridian Bioprocessing, but essentially Viridian. And their whole remit was to use bacteria and and microbes to actually decontaminate both soils and um, contaminated wastewaters using bacteria. Obviously, people will know about sewage and the use of bacteria in sewage, etc. But actually, the, the fascination with this is how do we use bacteria to clean up some very harmful, toxic waste that we have? And the answer to the question is they can. They break down oil very easily. Well, when I say very easily, they break down oil and they break down components and hydrocarbons, but they they can also mobilize molecules as well. And I spent a great deal of time um, working on a a major project, um, both internationally, but also in the UK, around looking at the mobilization of heavy metals within soils, for example. Um, And that was actually with uh, working with British nuclear fuels at the time. And I can mention them just because um, we had some papers that came out um, talking about use of bacteria to clean up soils at the time. And I was on a major project, but I was essentially taken on um, as a, uh, a kind of biotechnologist, a scientist for Viridian, and eventually became technical director of the of the company and leading on a number of projects uh, around wastewater and on soil decontamination using bacteria and components of bacteria as well. And and I loved every second of it. I do you know what I can say this honestly, Andy? I every job 
the day I'm the job I'm in today, uh, I have loved loved every role I've ever had, and not a lot of people can necessarily always say that. And and certainly the Viridian role was a complete revelation for me because it gave me the opportunity to establish why I did science, why I enjoyed science, and how to and use science for the greater good, in this case, climate change and environmental um, decontamination. So, yeah, I, lo I loved every second of it. And I learned a lot from both uh, the science-wise, but also leading on a, leading teams as well to successful outcomes. And I think that's uh, that was a real progression for me in taking my science forward. And so um, in terms of, so I've also noted down that this uh, bio, BioVox system, is, is, that, is that what you were referring to when you were talking a moment ago, or is the BioVox system a different way of... Uh, no, 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 That's a, 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 it was a great team, and I, I can't take uh, individual responsibility for, for the BioVox, but part of a team at, um, at, uh, at Viridian were developing a solution to treat some very harmful... What, essentially waste gases coming from a, a foot manufacturing company let's call it that for the for the moment and and essentially those hydrocarbons needed to be dealt with and so we developed what was called a biovox system to to actually um, funnel in if you like those gases into a into an environment that allowed the bacteria to actually munch them up eat them up to carbon dioxide and water uh, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, it was one of the best systems I'd ever seen uh, operating. Um, we actually won some environment awards as part of Viridian. We won a business award as well as part of Viridian. There are some weird pictures of me picking up the award. Um, <laughs> as, we, as we always do when we go to awards, you don't, you don't think you're going to win. Unfortunately, our award was given towards the back end of it. And both uh, Dr. Cliff Burton and myself, who were technical directors of the company, um, probably had one or two to drink at that moment in time, at the end of it, thinking we weren't going to win and unfortunately well fortunately because we won, won. <laughs> and i and i can't tell you how how i managed to walk from the back of the um, the room to the front of the stage to pick up the award but we did so on behalf of the team they did a brilliant job as well of course in terms of the science to get this to a commercial commercial operating system um at the back end of this foot manufacturing company but it actually solve some real big problems for them and reduce the amount of uh, what we then call VOCs, but essentially these, these harmful gases being pushed out into the environment to, uh, and into the community. So, yeah, that's the BioVox system. That just is an example of the kind of commercial venture that science can take you to. So to actually use the scientific knowledge of the research and innovation, which is really important, and to commercialize it in such a way that actually is making a difference to us, you and me, and to society uh, as a whole, both internationally, but also obviously into the UK as well. Yes, I mean, you've, you've, you've partially stolen my next question there, because I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you about, um, you know, I suppose the challenges of um, having, uh, you know, scientific ideas and making them com commercially viable. And um, I guess, I mean, you've got a good experience of this, so, and, and you've done it, done it successfully. Um, I think sometimes maybe, do you think scientists sometimes have a difficulty kind of explaining their ideas to a commercial market? Or what's your experience of, um, I know you've talked a little bit about it already, but any particular thoughts about that intersection between business and um and new technologies 
it, it's critical and actually it feeds into the role that I took after Viridian, which was with working with a, a huge, uh, giant, f- fast-moving consumer group company called Reckitt Benkiza. Because when I left for Viridian, I joined um, the FMCG Reckitt Benkiza, uh, based out of Hull, as the as one of the the new technology part of the new technology team, looking at commercialization of technology and bring it to the fore. I think it's critical that we. Um, we, we need fundamental research and innovation, but we also need to realize that part of that fundamental research and innovation that goes on, there has to be an outcome from it in some shape and form in some cases. Because there are some really serious problems, whether they're healthcare related, environmental, re- environmentally related or, or whatever it might be, whether it's, it's space exploration, all the other aspects that go on. It's about so what? So what with the science? Where does it go? What does it lead? How does it solve problems? And I think COVID particularly showed the importance of great research science that goes on in our universities and in our companies as well that can solve big problems very quickly um, to, to, in this case, save people's lives at the end of the day. So I think the the link between research and innovation in universities, the link between commercial enterprises, you know, pharmaceutical research, whether it's Pfizer, AstraZeneca in pharmaceutical research, or even research into, you know, the, the way we use technology in Microsoft and all these other companies that I kind of work closely with in various ways. It's important that we realize that there is a purpose behind it. And the purpose is for societal gain and how we solve problems that we have and also you know make sure that we see those problems ahead of the game before they arise and have solutions potentially to solve them and so i think at an early stage we need to make sure that young people really realize the importance of science innovation and research at an early stage at school but also see that they actually have an outcome somewhere and that the purpose of doing science at school has a research outcome, but also has a commercial outcome at some point for some of this going forward. So I think it's a real continuum for me, Andy, that science actually is embedded in society in such a way that actually those people who have an interest to want to be scientists see that actually it's about solving problems at the end of the day. It's not about just doing science for science sake, although there are elements of research that can be like that. It's about actually so what, and so what's really important for me. So um, I'm going to make a segue now to kind of the the education world. Um, Obviously, by the sounds of it, you were, to me, in the deep north up in Hull, um, as someone who's uh, located near Southampton. Um, And uh, you then had an opportunity, or maybe you made the opportunity, to become a governor at at some local schools um, nearby you. So how did, you know, that happen from being obviously a very technical scientific, uh, you know, business orientated person and then suddenly thinking, oh, I'm going to uh, move into that. Did somebody ask you what was the kind of motivation for getting involved in your local schools? Well, when, when I moved from from Reckitt Benkiza, actually, I went via uh, a role in Oxford in a commercial role looking at spin outs and spin ins for, for companies working at the Begbroke Science Park. But actually, it was while, while I was at Begbroke Science Park, I, I kind of lived between Oxford and Canterbury, really. But I really f- fell in love with the fact that, was, that a governor role particularly was about giving something back to the community, it was giving something back to schools and really trying to um, inspire a new generation, but also to support teachers in what is a very, very difficult role being a, t- a teacher these days about the, Im- the amount of work that they have to do to get 
pupils through exams. Uh, the curriculum is very busy, uh, as you'll know. Um, so I felt that if I really wanted to live and breathe what the, the challenges that existed in schools, um, I needed to become a governor to understand that. And it was about giving back. It was about supporting head teachers and leadership team. And it's about supporting teachers and young people. And so while I was at Oxford, I kind of became a governor of a, a primary school in Canterbury. It's my first dip in the, in the water. And... Um, and I, I absolutely um, valued that involvement because I eventually became chair of governors for having then gone through two Ofsted inspections with that school. And Irene uh, Nedzriki is the head teacher there. And I really had a great relationship to really drive that school to become a good school. And in, a, in, a, and in some cases, some parts to, that at the time were outstanding. So I think... It was really at Oxford when I did that governor role. When I was at Oxford, I, I was then um, um, kind of introduced to, as part of my role at Begbrook Science Park, to um, to the Sir Gareth Roberts. Um, and Sir Gareth Roberts was the most incredible um, person um, that's probably been one of the most influential people in my life. He was president of Wolfson College, Oxford. He was also leading on a lot of things that were going on at Begbroke Science Park and the kind of commercial bit of science and helping science researchers really bring forward some of the solutions to problems go, uh, going on. Uh, but he also was responsible at the time with Gordon Brown to, to, to with a report called Set for, uh, Set for Success. And he was majorly responsible for really driving forward the importance of science, not just within universities and in the commercial world, but making sure that young people saw science as a career destination of choice. So while I was at Oxford, I was seconded to the regional development agency um, in, in the southeast. And that's really where my love for skills and making sure young people had an opportunity to really drive forward science and science, technology, engineering and math skills really came from, which has led me on to the role that I'm in now, which I'm sure I'll come on to describe. Well, indeed, that is, that is my next question. So obviously what you, you'd had that experience in schools and then uh, STEM learning. Again, what, what opportunity was that? Was that something you were seeking? Some, did somebody tap you on the shoulder in the corridor and, uh, and ask you, um, how did that, how did you merge and transition into, you know, your, your really important role in, in, in STEM learning? Uh, yeah, it was a tap on the shoulder. It really, it really genuinely was, but not in a corridor, but at a right. at a conference. Would you right. believe? So while I was bit, while I was seconded to the regional development agency and and setting up probably what I think was one of the first ever uh, avenues for um, the then CEDA, the, uh, the South East of England Development Agency, went into to try and for you know really drive forward the whole science and engineering and technology kind of agenda um, with young people and kind of working with industry and employers and et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was a tap of the shoulder at a conference from the late uh, Pam Bowen um, MBE who basically turned around to me and, and, and said, um, this, we've got a new not-for-profit charity forming at the moment and we're kind of looking for people um, to maybe uh, kind of work with us and I'm looking for a regional director to to join um, the then what was then known as SetNet um, to drive this forward. And um, the remarkable thing is that um, uh, I hadn't thought about this. So it was a bit fortuitous that coming into the skills agenda, but it was also maybe fortune favours the brave, I think, once in a while. And it was a brave moment to go from Oxford, where I loved the role I had in Oxford, um, to a, a new, newly formed 
organization called uh, not-for-profit organization called setnet and and join a, a, a join a team a small team at that time um trying to drive what a new program called the STEM Ambassadors Program, which um, was then originally and known as the Science Engineering Ambassadors Program. It's now known as the STEM Ambassadors Program. And it was all about role models from industry and research organizations giving up their time as volunteers to go in and inspire a new generation within schools and non-school groups, etc. And um, and would you believe, um, while I was at Oxford, and I knew about the program, um, before I joined SETNET, but it was while I was at Oxford, I became a STEM ambassador. I'm now 20 years in April this year, a STEM ambassador, and I'm proud to be a STEM ambassador. And I'm proud, I wear my badge with pride. I know it's a podcast and you can't see my badge on my I can just about see it, I can just about see it. <laughs> I, wear, I wear my badge with sheer pride because it's all about making sure that we can use um, the power of individuals, uh, women and men, um, and those from all types of backgrounds to inspire the new generation of, uh, of scientists and technologists and engineers and those with the kind of enjoyment of mathematical subjects to really be the next generation of scientists in a commercial world, but also in a research and science and innovation world as well. So, I mean, I know you, you do loads of great work. What is the best way for, I guess, maybe schools that haven't engaged perhaps in STEM in, in a variety of uh, you know, regions? I know you're, you're the Southeast region, but... Um, what's the best way to get that relationship started? Do they just, uh, in the southeast, just email you? What, what's the practical steps they need to do to kind of start something with the school? Well, STEM Learning STEM is a, a, a wonderful and incredible organisation and one, I think, that's a flagship organisation for the UK. I don't think I can think of too many organisations internationally that are like STEM Learning uh, and the, what we do. I mean, part of our role isn't just about the STEM Ambassadors Programme, for example, which we, we hold. It's about improving the quality of education in the classroom, working with teachers, technicians and staff across the uh, um, uh, across schools um, it, itself, both primary, secondary, and FE colleges. Um, I mean, the way to get in, um, to get involved with STEM learning is is yes, from a southeast point of view, pick up the phone, talk to me, drop me an email. But we have a very active website, like everybody else. There are so many ways these days to get in touch with STEM learning. We have a community platform. We have Instagram. We have Facebook. We are everywhere. But the whole purpose of what we do is to have a world-leading STEM education in the UK. And we work closely with government, both at the Department for Education and, and UKRI, stroke part of the business energy industrial strategy of government, to make sure that every school and every college, every non-school group and youth group has the opportunity to engage um, and, and, and be involved with STEM in some shape or form in their lives. And hopefully, as part of that, We'll encourage more young people to satisfy massive skills shortages we have, both in engineering and construction, in areas of pharmaceutical research, and in the growing areas of digital, the digital world at the moment, to make sure those young people can see a career destination for them in these areas. Um, but I, I also think, Andy, we just need a society um, that understands STEM skills much more. We may not convince everybody to stay in them, but we'll have a well-informed public going forward that can debate some of those controversial issues in some cases that exist within science and technology and engineering and have a society that feels that we are a society that understands science and understands engineering and understands technology in such a way that we can actually promote it for the good 
and and actually really drive that one forward. And there are so many opportunities. I cannot say to you that uh, more strongly that actually just great the incredible opportunities that young people have for going into STEM subjects per se. Now that leads perfectly onto my my next question, which I was going to ask you about. Um, from your kind of experience being um, what I call a, a proper scientist in inverted commas, um, you know, working in industry, working in business, uh, working with schools, knowing about teachers, working in STEM, you know, so much experience in this area. And I was just wondering what you th- you're thinking at the moment in terms of um, science qualifications, and you can be as liberal with your thoughts as, 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 as you wish, um, in terms of what we should be thinking about maybe in the future for science qualifications, maybe, you know, we think about GCSEs, A-levels, other, you know, vocational qualifications, T-levels, there's lots of options out there, of course. Um, What do you think um, might need to change over the the next five to 10 years that uh, perhaps isn't there at the moment that the really things that you see that are perhaps missing and could we embed those in some way? Um, uh, in those those 11 to 18 qualifications or is it too early is it should we just be concentrating on the knowledge or can we bring some other bits in there so what any thoughts about what what kids are learning in schools at the moment and, and what we could perhaps take out or nudge in any thoughts on that so I think early on in the conversation you and I've just had I think you I, I've always emphasised the importance that science subjects technology and engineering subjects and STEM across the board are practical subjects they are, pra- they are practical subjects both in industry, but they're practical subjects at, at university and they're practical subjects in um, in, in various ways, uh, uh, wherever you might, in research institutes, etc. So I think what's really important is that we need to give the widest variety and diversity of pathways for young people to enter STEM subjects and science more broadly. Um, you're quite right to raise uh, 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 comments around there are T-levels there. Part of the T-levels agenda is 45 days of what I call industry time of some description for a young person doing a T-level over their, over that period. Um, you have um, high technical qualifications that exist as well uh, that the Department of Education are pushing th- through as well. The importance of A-levels. But you also got these apprenticeship opportunities that are now growing much more. And I know that government are very inclined to want to make sure that um, young people have the opportunity to um, take up apprentices, apprenticeship, apprenticeship positions um, in various sectors, whether it's in um, engineering and construction to even core science going on. So I think that the key answer to this, uh, Andy, for me is it, there needs to be a broad range of places for young people to, 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 to find their way into STEM subjects and science for, for the greater good. And I think that part of this is also making sure that we don't just hang our, hang our coat on necessarily academic qualifications itself. I think sometimes some of the greatest scientists I've ever come across um, have not necessarily been the most academic. Some of them have been more practical than they've been academic and they're great problem solvers. They are incredible problem solvers and they think laterally as well. So I think we've got to, in a, in a, in a, in a society where we have people from so many different backgrounds, there are 
there are aspiration for me it's a capital a here aspirations really important here for everything that we do talked about the stem ambassadors program earlier on we do research placement schemes etc to give more disadvantaged students the chance to go into a research environment under stem learning as well and a few other things but the importance is to allow young people from every background a pathway to get them into stem and i you know i've we have a a great, a great agenda about um, making sure that we support those people with special educational needs. We have lots of autistic children uh, within in, in schools and outside school environments. But I've met some incredibly amazing people in my journey so far, and some coming from those very what I call special educational needs, but are some of the greatest engineers and technologists that you would ever want to see so i think we can't lose people on this journey and the wider variety of uh, of, uh, of pathways that we have we should have those and i think we haven't quite got all those pathways exactly right yet um we've got to listen to industry a lot more about the the lack of um certain skills I, i've come away from conferences where certain companies in different sectors talked about the lack of digital skills potentially for young people, the lack of you know understanding of technology, where technology and computing can lead you to, etc. Um, you know, I've seen practicality a little bit uh, diluted sometimes in what is a very busy curriculum in schools. This is no fault of teachers. They're having to deliver a very active curriculum. I think there is a balance here, Andy, of practical skills and academic skills that need to exist within a school environment, a college environment, but also in support of where's our final destination, which may be research, science and innovation, but will also be industry in some shape or form. And I want to say here very openly, for someone who's come from a spin-out company all those years ago, the importance of having entrepreneurship and innovation and creativity for young people is critical. And if there's one thing that science is, um, it's about having creative people and innovative people. And we need to help them create some companies potentially for the future that really solve some of the big problems we have. So entrepreneurship, as well as enterprising uh, opportunities are as important to everything we talk about in terms of the core STEM skills agenda. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, well, yes, there are, you know, there's lots of challenges, lots of opportunities, of course, as well, um, you know, to make things, um, you know, better for, better, for, better for the young people and yeah, give those, let's say, those opportunities. I mean, to finish off with, is there any final messages you'd like to um, put out there, either for STEM learning um, uh, and things that are going on in the next couple of years or uh, projects you're involved in um, before we head off into the sunset today? Well, I, I first of all, I, I think, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm blessed to be working with an and a, a fantastic organization, a not-for-profit organization that I think really makes a difference in the lives of young people, teachers, uh, and, and actually works strategically with uh, employers and research institutes and universities. But I think for me, it, I'm going to say it's, it's for, for any, any teacher or a young person listening to this, it's about relationships, relationships, relationships. Reach out to people. Don't fear about talking to people from industry. Um, and if you're a young person in school and you want to talk to a bioscientist or you want to talk to a construction engineer or you want to talk to somebody who works in gaming, for example, tap your teacher on the shoulder. 
tell them to get in chats with, with STEM learning about getting a STEM ambassador role model coming in. If you want to get a placement into a research institute, tap your teacher on the shoulder and tell them about maybe get an opportunity to get a, an, an industry placement over the summer or whatever. And for me, I, I think more broadly to, to parents out there and to, to teachers out there and to employers out there, get involved. I mean, I, I talked earlier on about coming back to this about connections. For me, make connection. The, the, what really makes a difference is make we need to make connections between scientific principles and scientific wonder and phenomena. We need to kind of make connections in what occurs in and outside the school classroom in such a way that really makes a difference to careers advisors and teachers, but also makes a difference to the lives of people who are in industry as well that can actually see what goes on in schools on a more regular basis. And we kind of need to make um, connections in such a way that we kind of bring collaborations together that can make a difference to young people going forward. So seeing is believing for me, Andy. And the way we only do seeing is believing is that young people see those in science and technology and engineering is not people they read about or see just on the news or TV. They actually meet in person and they and maybe meet people who are a little bit like them as well and their backgrounds and that can inspire them to pursue a journey, which I would like them to do in STEM skills for per se going forward. Definitely. Lots of great advice. And I feel like one of the main messages is definitely turn around when someone taps you on the shoulder, but also don't be afraid of sometimes tapping other people on the shoulder to ask for help, advice, and sometimes guidance. I think that's really important uh, to, to reach out, as you say, and and uh, get the opportunity to see those those, those people in those, those STEM careers. And I know STEM Learning does uh, fantastic work in that area. So thank you very much for your time today. I know you're a busy person, Ange. Um, I'll let you get better, let you get on your, on your day. And um, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Andy, absolutely delighted. And thank you for the, your time and, and to, the, to those who are listening in as well. Thank you. Well, I hope you got a lot out of that episode. It was great to talk to Ajay about his science career and his deep well of enthusiasm for supporting young people and getting them into a position where they can experience the possibilities that a STEM career can bring them. If you are based in the Southeast, you are lucky to have him. So get in touch and see how he can help you and your school enliven your STEM opportunities. Do you know someone else who's a real enthusiast like Ajay? If so, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me on andy.woods at pearson.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you on the next one.